it going to work? Is it going to work? Can you hear it? Yeah, I think so. Okay. Good morning. Well, first of all, I'd like to thank Jacob for filling in for me the last couple of weeks. You know, in 46 years of ministry, the last two Sundays were the first time I've ever missed a Sunday because of being sick. So our whole family gets together usually after whatever holiday we're celebrating. So we had a late Christmas around New Year's. Our whole family was together. One of us was sick, and everyone in the family, all my kids, all my grandkids, except Connie and Everett, got sick from whatever this was. So it was uh, awkward because Marina had a baby and two surgeries during that time, and so we were trying to cover for her and um, cover for each other. And because we were all exposed and all had the same sickness, I had babysitting detail, being sick, and Connie and my daughter Jessica were taking care of Marina. So it was, it was a busy last couple of weeks. So uh, at any rate, um, thanks to Jacob for filling in for me. It's good to know <clears throat> when I'm gone that uh, the church is in good hands and that we have a good preaching staff. So uh, I heard that Jacob was... I heard that uh, Jacob was pretty busy juggling different roles up here. Um, <clears throat> so thanks that he was able to step up for me. Uh, let's begin with a moment of prayer. <clears throat> Lord, thank you for your word to us. Help us to be good students and good stewards of your word, not just simply to know more about what the word says, but to allow the word to penetrate our heart and our soul and to change us. Father, we invite you to challenge our thinking, to grow in our understanding, and as we come to understand that we serve a great God, a big God, uh, that we um, love you more and so diligently serve you as a consequence of our love for you. Now teach us, we pray by the power of your Holy Spirit indwelling the speaker and the hearer, and in the name of Jesus, amen. There's a TV series on Netflix called Dead to Me. It's a dark TV comedy, and in this movie, Christina Applegate and Linda Cardinelli, uh, Card Cardelli, I forgot her name already. Anyway, <clears throat> they play these two grieving ladies. Uh, Jen, played by uh, Christina Applegate, um, is she's grieving because her husband was killed in a hit-and-run accident. And so she goes to this grieving class where she meets Judy. Um, Judy says that she is grieving also because her uh, fiancé died. In reality, Judy is the one who caused the... She's the hit-and-run accident cause-er. She's the one that uh, hit the guy. And her fiancé didn't die. He dumped her. And so the whole series goes on as it begins to open up that that uh, uh, Jen finds out this mysterious dark tale that's going on in the background. Now, we've all heard that saying, you know, we've heard the saying that uh, he's dead to me or she's dead to me. It's, you know, it's an ultimate insult. It, it means that whether that person is alive or not, we behave as if they were dead. They stopped existing. We, have, we want nothing more to do with them. So we, it's a phrase that's used uh, at many different levels to express some extreme disappointment or dislike. It's not that they are dead, it's that we behave towards them as if they were. Now in this passage that we're looking at today in Romans chapter 7, Paul is driving home a point that he's been making since this book began. He is telling us over and over again 
that we as human beings are in desperate need of something we have none of. We are in desperate need of righteousness. And the law of God tells us what God requires, and it tells us who God is. The law describes the righteousness of God and the righteousness that God requires of men. But unfortunately, the law does not give us the power, the ability to become righteous. A number of years ago, there was a tragic boating accident. <clears throat> this family was uh, enjoying the time on the, on the lake in, in the boat, and the boat turned quickly, and, a, and the daughter, a little girl, fell out of the boat. She couldn't swim. So the father quickly spun the boat around and went back to where the little girl was foundering around, and he jumped in out of the boat. He jumped in to save his daughter. Well, he could swim, but for some inexplainable reason, he drowned right away. The people that were still left in the boat didn't know how to operate the boat, and so the boat kept on drifting away from the drowning father and the daughter, and the people on that boat were helpless to do anything about it. Nearby, there was a rowboat and a guy fishing who saw this whole thing, and he began rowing frantically over to help the little girl, but he was paralyzed from the waist down, and so all he could do was to row over there and hold out an oar for the little girl to grab hold of. And he watched helplessly as she tried to hold on to the oar, and then ultimately she slipped beneath the surface while the man who was unable to do anything more, all he could do was watch while she died. Um, the problem is for us, all mankind is like that drowning girl. Uh, we are overcome by sin. We are unable to save ourselves. The law of Moses or the the law of human nature, any natural laws that you can apply are, are like that man in the rowboat. You know, they, they have good intentions. They, they desperately want to help, but they're frankly unable to help. The, his intention was sincere. It was, it was commendable. He just lacked the power to save this drowning girl. And so, too, the law of God is good. It is not bad. It, but the law can't save us. It lacks the ability to save us. In fact, it lacks the ability to sanctify us, which is the point that Paul is making in the text before us today. Worse than that, while the law is good, somehow it sustains man's bondage to, to sin. So the, 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 the problem is that we need to be released from the law that holds us in this grip of sin. And that's what Paul is describing in the text before us today. In order to be released from sin, first, the law must become dead to me. Take your Bibles and turn where we left off, what, what, what was that, three, four weeks ago now? <clears throat> I think the last time I preached was Christmas Eve. Anyway, for wherever we were before that, turn to Romans chapter 7, verse 1. <clears throat> Remember, Paul has been teaching about um, the problem that we have with our lack of righteousness. Man's fundamental problem is his lack of righteousness. And so in Romans 3, verse 10, Paul says, There is none righteous, no, not one. And he's quoting from Psalms 14. And because of this universal problem of our unrighteousness and the fact that we have a righteous creator, um, this righteous creator is presently manifesting his wrath 
against unrighteousness of sinners. So he judges sin, he judges the sinner, and he demonstrates his righteousness by doing so. But he also demonstrates his righteousness by saving, by in, uh, uh, imputing righteousness on the sinner. So God's manifesting his righteousness by condemning sin in some and by saving the sinner in others. And he's accomplishing this because he righteously pours out his wrath against Jesus as a substitute for us. And so he is righteous in doing that, and therefore we receive the righteousness of Christ by faith alone, apart from works, including any works of obeying or submitting or, or following the works of the law. The law can't save anyone. It can only condemn us. It can only show how we are failing to meet up to God's standard of righteousness. The law can define righteousness. It can bear witness to the righteousness of God, but it can't make us righteous. So not only can this law not save us, the law can't sanctify us. That's the point that Paul is making in our text today. Of course, the Jews would find that rather an offensive statement because to them, the law, and to them he means the law of Moses, the law was everything. You know, to suggest that the law not only can't save you or sanctify you, but actually trap you in your sin would be highly offensive to the Jew. And conversely, like Paul was talking about earlier, you have others who, who see God's grace as an escape from the law, this idea of antinomianism, no law, and they see this as a, as a means by which they can just do what they want to, and they, and they sin. So you have one side saying you have to have the law to control us from sinning, and you have the other side which says we have grace, we are absolutely free to sin. Now that's a truly stupid idea for a Christian to believe, that because we have grace, we are free to sin. It's a contradiction of our union with Christ in his death and his resurrection, his newness of life. The whole idea that you're free now from the law, now you can return to the very thing which, which held you in the grip of death is a, is a, is a, a contradiction. It, it's it's a, an absurdity. See, we're not saved in order to be free to sin. We are, we are justified, we're declared, <clears throat> excuse me, we're declared righteous through the work of Christ so that God might manifest his righteousness in us. That's my thesis here in this text before us today. Now, the argument of uh, Romans uh, 7, 1 through 6 uh, is built, of course, on everything that Paul has said in the last six chapters. And he's arguing that man's unrighteousness is the reason for God's judgment, and it is the reason for God's provision of his righteousness by faith in Jesus Christ. But righteousness is not only what the gospel provides for us, but more than that, righteousness is what the gospel requires from us. Those whom God has justified, those whom God has saved, ought to be living out lives of righteousness before men. Now, the text before us today is kind of easy to break down, um, but if you're making notes, Romans 7, 1 through 6 can be broke down. Verse 1, Paul states the general principle, and that is that the law has authority over those who are alive. Um, verses 2 to 3, Paul, and Dem Paul demonstrates that principle by, use, by, by making a picture, an illustration 
of a woman who's bound by the law while her husband is alive, and she's free from the law when her husband dies. Uh, verses 4 through 6, Paul ap- applies that principle of verse 1 and the illustration of 2 and 3 um, to make his point. His point is that the believer has a union with Christ, and therefore we are liberated from the law. And then finally, he reminds us of his purpose of salvation. The purpose of salvation is that we would become righteous. So you have the principle, verse 1, picture, point, purpose. The principle is that death liberates us from sin. The picture is the woman whose husband dies. The point is that we have been liberated from um, from the law, and the purpose is that we have been given salvation, and the reason for that is that we might bear fruit of righteousness. So first of all, the principle, death liberates us from the law. Uh, verse 1, or do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? Back in the 2014, a guy named Joe Bailey wrote a book, and the book was called A View from the Hearse. And Joe is writing this book as a devotional for people who have uh, experienced death in their family and feel grief. And so he's, it's, a, it's a, a meditation on how to deal with grief and dying. And he knows what he's talking about. He, of his seven children, three of them were, were, uh, died in, in infancy. And so he's writing this book about how to handle grief. Of course, the main point here is that if you start thinking in terms of life from the point of death, it really changes everything the, the way you live your life. You know, I was thinking that, about that too, about all the, the stuff that I've accumulated and I always want something more. You know, this, this week I was looking at uh, uh, electric bikes, electric mountain bikes. I was thinking, I'd like to have an electric mountain bike. And I, was like, and I was thinking, you know, if I die, what would my wife do with all my stuff? You know, all the stuff that I've accumulated. If you start looking at life from the point of a view from the hearse, it really changes your values. It changes um, what you think of. It changes what you find is important. That's what Paul is doing right here. He wants us to view sanctification from the point of death, from the view of from the hearse. Only this time he wants us to take, go all the way back to the point of Christ's death. He wants us to view sanctification from the cross from the burial of Jesus and from, from his resurrection. And so he, he's drawing our attention to the death of Christ, but his point is, in Christ's death, you need to see positionally your own death. When Christ died, you died. That's the point he's trying to make. And so he draws out our death in Christ. When Christ died, we died to the penalty of sin, Romans chapter 3. In Christ, when he died, we also should die, therefore, to the practice of sin, uh, Romans chapter 6. When Christ died, we also died to the power of sin. So you have the, the, pen, the, the penalty, the practice, and the power of sin. The point is, when Christ died, we died. When Christ died, he died to the law. Therefore, you also, we also died to the law. The law is now dead to me. But here's the problem, of course. We live in a, a time very unlike Paul's time. We live in a time where people go out of their way to, to, to be lawless. We want to go as far as we can to be free from the law. 
We don't want to observe the law. And we pride ourselves on that. And so if you say to someone, Christ has freed you from the law, they will say, well, so what? I'm already freed from the law. I'm doing everything I can right now to not observe the law. I want to go as far as I can or, or dare to be lawless. And you tell them that they have to be freed from the law, and they'd say, well, I already am. But, of course, they're meaning in a different way. So how do you make meaningful when you say to people that they need to be free from the law when they find that whole concept to be irrelevant? Well, let me pause here to point out that the, what we're talking about when we talk about the law. Because some people say that Paul is writing to Jewish Christians in Rome, and he's speaking specifically about the law of Moses. And... Um, or the, the law of the Old Testament that would apply to the Jews. And that when he says in verse 1, when he calls them brothers, that he's referring to brother Jews. But most commentators would agree here that what Paul's talking about is the law in general that would apply to all people. And the brothers that he's talking about here are brother Christians, not brother Jews. I mean, the Jews knew that the law of Moses had been given to them from Mount Sinai, and that it came with great manifestations of the presence of God. It was very fearful. It was very awesome when it, when it came. To the Jew, nothing could be more weighty or solemn than this giving of the law at, at Sinai. And so the Jew regarded the law as God's great, good, um, beneficial gift to man. So how could such an important gift, how could something so central to God's purpose, how could you lay that aside? You know, why would you want to say I'm free from the law? Why would you even want that? Because the Jew saw the law as something which identified him, and it was very difficult. The paradox of the law is that it was good, but it was also a, a burden that was, that was totally overwhelming. In fact, the Jew called being under the law the yoke. Of course, you know what I'm talking about. A yoke is, is a is a, a fixture that you put on an animal when you're putting it to work. He's, he's bearing this load. He's carrying the weight. So you put this yoke on him. The Jew referred to the law as his yoke. He understood that it was difficult. He understood that it was weighty. He understood that it was, that it was heavy. And yet still it was, even though it was this overwhelming burden, is what identified him as a Jew. You, you submit to, you, you bear the yoke of the law, and that's, what makes you uniquely God's people. Nevertheless, this yoke is, is a burden that no one could really bear under. Remember Acts, I think it's Acts 15 in the, in the Jerusalem Council, and Peter and Paul are making this argument that we shouldn't ask the Gentiles to submit under this burden of the law. Because there are some of the, Jew, uh, the Jewish Christians that were saying, you know, as, as Gentiles are one to Christianity, they need to first submit to the law of Moses. And Peter tellingly says, uh, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the disciples a yoke that neither we nor our fathers have been, a have been able to bear? So, his words here are a very candid admission that to try to live under this law of God is onerous. It's, it's literally impossible. Why, why would you try to 
force the new believers under this yoke that we couldn't even uh, submit to. But now we're left with a problem. Is, is this burden of the law, is this uniquely a Jewish problem? And because since we're not Jews, you know, how does that uh, affect us? You know, why are we even talking about it? Is it a, a Jewish problem alone? How do we, how do we uh, apply that to ourselves today? Because the law that Paul is talking about is not only the law of the Old Testament. He's talking about the law that all men are under and all men are aware that they are under. It is a, it is a law that is a problem for all people, including the Gentiles. You remember in the beginning of the book, uh, Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis is a, a Cambridge professor and a, an apologist, and he argues in the beginning of his book that all people recognize they, they, they're, they're aware that they're bound by certain moral standards. We, we, we know that we are under a law, even if we're not under the law of, of Moses. We recognize that we're under this law. And so Lewis called this the law of human nature. And he proves his point by saying that all people are aware that they're under this law of human nature by the way we argue with each other. So he gives these examples. Men say things like, how would you like it if anyone did the same to you? Or, that's my seat, I was there first. Or, leave him alone, he isn't doing you any harm. Or, why should you shove in first, meaning cut, cut your place in line. Uh, or, give me a bit of your orange, I gave you a bit of mine. Or, come on, you promised, Suzette. See, Lewis believed that we make statements like that, that uh, we're showing that we recognize that there is a standard and that we are all under it and that we have all violated it. That there is a, 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 a standard law that, that he called the law of human nature and that we have not measured up. And he says, you know, to this degree, everybody understands whether they want to call it that or not, that there is a right and wrong. There is a good and bad. There is a standard, and we know when somebody has violated right and wrong. And as a consequence of that, we experience guilt. And it's the presence of that guilt which itself is the proof that we are under a law. We, we recognize there's a right and a wrong and that we have not done it. So we know that we are condemned by that, and so we have this universal problem of sin, and the sin is the violation of the law. Uh, Ray Steadman gave an interesting argument in his uh, commentary on Romans chapter 7. He said there's four proofs that all persons recognize that they are naturally under law. And I don't mean the law of the Old Testament, but we're under law. And uh, even if we're not under the law of the Old Testament or the, the Jews were under, we all recognize that we are under law. And so he lists these four proofs, and I'll abbreviate them for you because they're rather lengthy. The first one is that we're proud of our achievements. We're proud of our achievements. Um, when we point out some area of moral achievement, uh, we're usually 
doing so because we are creating a diversion from those areas of our life which are moral failures. For instance, there's a guy that, you know, he's a philanthropist, and he gives $100,000 to some charity, and so he's boasting on the fact that he gave $100,000 to this charity. He's boasting on his moral achievements. And Stedman argues probably because he's recognizing that the way he got that money is really in question. For instance, uh, you know, he worked hard to make his mark in the business world at the expense of his family. He has the sense of failure of his family, so he's distracting us by showing that he's morally great by giving this money to this charity. Or perhaps he, you know, he, he got it illicitly from taking it from somebody else. So it's a distraction, it's a diversion to, to show what great success that I've done in this area so that you don't look at the glaring failures in another area. Second, he says, we're critical of other people. Again, this is another diversionary, tra diversionary tactic. If I can show you what a hairball Terry Johnson is, you won't be looking at my mistakes. You won't be looking at my weaknesses because you'll be preoccupied with these other things. And so um, it's, isn't it interesting, too, that when we criticize other people, that we do so precisely in the area that we are very much aware of our own failings. Do you criticize somebody for not telling the truth? Probably because you realize this is an area of your own failings, that you are loose with the truth too. Or anyway, we, uh, we you know, well, another example is, you know, how critical we are of other people's pride. And the reality is if you're very sensitive to other people's pride, it's probably because you wrestle with pride yourself. Or if you complain loudly about being cheated by someone else, probably you have an error, uh, that's an area that you wrestle with as well in that uh, you may have been, uh, you may have cheated your other associates. So anyway, the third reason is that we, uh, we're reluctant to admit our own failures. Okay, so this is a reverse side of the boasting one, of the first one, because we instinctively feel that we have not measured up, that we have not uh, kept the law, we have not kept the standard, and we, we instinctively feel like we have to cover that up. We, we hide our, our failures. And if you didn't think that you were under a, a standard, you wouldn't have any objection to the fact of, of noting that you, you, you didn't live up to it because you don't recognize the validity of it in the first place. And the fourth one is that we experience, this is the most important one, very much like what Lewis was pointing out, is that we experience depression, discouragement, and defeat. And that really is the heart of the problem. You know, we recognize that. We feel discouragement. We feel defeat. We feel depression. It's because we recognize failure in these moral areas. Incidentally, isn't it interesting that social reformers are always trying to tell us that what we need to do is we need to raise the standard in some community by uh, providing more rules. And all we need to do to make this community more moral is to make them more informed about what is moral and then give them some incentive to follow it. What we're doing is we're just, we think we're making more laws, higher laws, better laws, but they're just 
more laws. But these better laws, these higher laws, only serve to increase our sense of failure and heightened our anxiety because we're defeated already with the failure to live up to the laws we already have. And Paul would say, maybe we'll get here next week, verse 24, oh, wretched man that I am, who will free me from the body of this death? It's not more laws. It's not more rules. It's not a higher law, a greater law, a more moral law, a better law. What frees us from this body of death, verse 25, is not a law, it's a person. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. The, the rescuer is a person. Nevertheless, the point is that we are under the law. The Jews under the law of the Old Testament, the Gentiles under the law of nature. The problem is the law can't save us. The law only points out our failure. And not only can the law not save us, the law can't sanctify us. It can't make us better. Now, it's all very easy to say. It's all very good to say that the answer to a holy life is not more law. It's a person. The reality is it doesn't make any sense if you don't have that because you're still in bondage to the law. And that's where our passage comes in, Romans 7, 1 through 4, because Paul is telling us that the solution to being under this burden of the law is death. We have to die to one in order to be free from the other. Before I can be free to be bound to Christ, I have to be freed from, I have to, the law has to be dead to me. And that's what he's teaching us here too. And so Paul states a, a, a fact, a premise, which we can all agree on based on verse 1, that the law has authority over a man as long as he lives. I mean, that should be self-evident. You know, as long as you live in this country, you're under this country's laws. But as soon as you die then those laws no longer apply to you. You can't be penalized for, for breaking the law if you're dead. You, the, the dead guy can't do anything. He can't, he can't live up to the law. He can't be punished for not obeying the law. We can all agree on that, right? I mean, that's kind of self-evident. So principle one is verse, verse one is death liberates us from the law. Now, verse two by the way, I'm on page 11, and we've only covered verse 1. <laughs> verse 2, the picture, here's an illustration now that Paul is using to show us how we are freed from the law. Verse 2, for a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she's free from the law. And if she marries another man, she's not an adulteress. <clears throat> so Paul is just simply giving an illustration. He's simply drawing a picture from a, a, a common experience that everyone else. And the point of this illustration, the point of this picture is simplicity itself. The point is just this that the death of the husband releases the wife from the law that bound her to marriage. The problem that we run into is when we try to make this picture, this illustration, an allegory. And in an allegory, all of the things, the elements in the, in the allegory uh, mean something. 
They, 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 they have corresponding parts. So you have, to, you have to say, okay, here's who's the wife, who's the husband, who's the new husband, you know, who's the, what's the marriage, the remarriage, the death. It's not an allegory. And you run into trouble when you try to make all of those parts mean something. It's, he's not trying to say that at all. He's, the, it, it, this is not a proof. It's just a picture. It's just an illustration that Paul is, is, is trying to elucidate to prove his first point. So what is Paul trying to say here? What is he trying to show? And more importantly, if it's so complicated, why use an illustration at all? I mean, why introduce something that's, that presents more problems then it resolves. And Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones gives three reasons why Paul is using this illustration. Not an allegory, it's an illustration. What does it illustrate? Three things. First of all, he said a woman is married to a man and he's under his authority. That's not so true in our society because we have more equal partnerships, but can we at least agree that in Paul's time, and in every other place in the world and in every other time, when a woman was married, she was under a man's authority. I'm not saying it's good or bad. I'm just saying that's the way it was, right? The woman was under the man's authority, and she was under his authority for as long as he was alive. Similarly, the entire human race is under the authority of these laws of nature that we've been talking about and of God, and we are bound by them. We are under that authority. And no one is free to just write their own moral laws or, or their own moral codes. We're not free to abandon the law. We are responsible to it. The second point that he makes is that the subjection to the wife in a marriage is lifelong. Again, I realize there's exceptions, but Paul's not trying to say all of the possibilities. He's just trying to make a simple point here, that as long as the husband is alive, and she's alive, that this situation exists. You know, it's a, again, today it's not like that in our society because we live in a society where marriages are easily broken. We have no fault divorce. You, you get tired of the person, you say, I, I think I could do better. Please don't do that, Connie. <laughs> But again, you have, to, you have to understand this from Paul's point of view in his time that uh, generally speaking, when a woman is in a marriage, she's in it for life. And you know, we do, in a Christian marriage, we still do the same thing. You know, we say, you know, to, will you have this person to have and to hold in sickness and in health as long as we both shall live, right? We still say that. We still imply that we understand marriage to be lifelong. And third, the third point that he makes here is in spite of the fact that the woman is under the authority of man and that the, the relationship is to exist for life, in spite of that, there is, however, the possibility of entering into another, a different relationship. And how is that accomplished? Well, when one of them dies, they have fulfilled the obligation. Now they're free to enter into this other relationship. Either one of them dies. So the point that Paul is making here, and that he, he's made before, but he's going to immediately say again, he reiterates twice, if the husband dies, she's released from the law. She's not an adulteress. Again, 
Let me repeat, this is not an allegory. Does, all of the parts don't correspond to different things. He's just stressing that the law of marriage is not violated by this new relationship if the former relationship has ended in a death. So the new relationship is quite legal. So it's just a simple point. You know, we get all tangled up when we try to make it mean something much more than that. So Paul here is not embarking on some discussion of, of marriage and remarriage. He's, he's not, he, he talks about marriage someplace else. He'll deal with fidelity in marriage elsewhere. He's just merely using this to make a point. Now, we realize our society has provisions for divorce, but so did the Jewish society and the Roman society. Divorce was, happened. It happened rather frequently. And the law allowed for that. He's making a generalization. He's not saying that uh, this is a, an argument about divorce, that you can only get divorced if somebody dies. That's not what he's trying to say. And we're forcing the issue. We're trying to read into the text. Um, if we're making this argument from silence that divorce is never justified unless the, the spouse dies. That's, it's just not his point that he's making here. He's simply calling attention to the fact that marriage laws were binding on each other only as long as they were both alive. Okay, Can, let's leave it at that and not make it more complicated. Now, in verse 4, Paul makes his point. The point is that Christians have been freed from their bondage to the law. Verse 4, likewise, my brother, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who's been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. Verse 6, but now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not the old way of the written law. We were, therefore, united with Christ in his death. As Christ died, you died. As Christ bears your sin, God counts you righteous. Having died to the law, we are now free to be united to a new master. We had a master in the law. We have a new master, a new relationship in Christ Jesus who was raised from the dead. Having died in Christ, we're free to be joined to the resurrection Christ. So that, where were we at? Verse 4, so that we can bear fruit of righteousness. That's the whole point. That's what Paul's been trying to drive home. We are in desperate need of righteousness. So Paul reminds us, therefore, that the purpose, this is my last point, the purpose of salvation is that we should display fruit, the fruit of righteousness. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that you may bear fruit for God. Paul is concerned with righteousness. Righteousness is that fruit of God. And the idea is that, we have, is that we attain this righteousness not from the law, not from Adam or from our old sinful nature or from 
the Old Testament or from the laws of Moses or even the laws of, of nature, this righteousness cannot be attained by any other source except that it comes from, from, from Christ. It is his righteousness that's imputed to us. How does that happen? How does that righteousness happen? It happens because we die to the law. The law is dead to me. And to become alive in Christ, Christ's righteousness now becomes mine in this new relationship. But notice that bearing fruit is the dominant theme throughout the Bible for the cause of your salvation. The first psalm, Psalms chapter Psalms 1, blessed is the man who delights in God's law. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields fruit in its season. And uh, Jesus said, every tree that, that is in me bears fruit, uh, Matthew uh, chapter 7, 17. Or how about the, the parable of the sower? In uh, Matthew 13, Jesus proclaims that the one who hears the word and understands it bears fruit, and it yields up a hundred times that which was sown. Or you talk about the prophet Micah, where God examines his people looking for fruit. And then Jesus reiterates that in Matthew chapter 21. The author of Hebrews, of James, Paul, Peter, they all say that, that, that uh, believers will bear fruit fruit in every good work. The object of our salvation is that we would bear fruit, fruit of righteousness. Now in chapter, or excuse me, in uh, verse 5, uh, the picture shifts again, and Paul reminds them of their former fruitlessness. He says, for while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. Now, Paul has been teaching all along that we are saved for a reason, to bear fruit, to be righteous. Why has God saved us? Of course, if you ask that anybody in our society and most people in our church, why has God saved you? Your answer is going to be something that has to do with you personally. This is an intensely personal thing. Why has God saved us? Well, he saved us because he loves me. I've even heard people say that God saves us because he, heaven would not be right if I was not there. <laughs> you know, God, God would not be happy unless I was saved. Well, there's a sense in which that's true, that God saved you because he loved you. I mean, obviously, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever should believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. But that's an, actually an incomplete answer. It's not wrong, it's just incomplete. It might be far better to say that God loves us and Jesus died for us so that we might be holy. What was God's objective in saving us? The whole point in the text that we're looking at here today is that God saves us who beforehand we're bound in wickedness and sin. He saves us so that we might be holy. What kind of fruit is God looking for? Well, in chapter 6, he says, verse 16, that it's obedience resulting in righteousness. Now, verse 19, righteousness resulting in holiness. 
In both cases there, we're talking about the fruit that results in conduct and character. And of course, everybody would know the fruit of the Spirit from Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the Spirit, which is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Those are fruits. They have to do with conduct and character. By the way, whose conduct and character? Christ's conduct and character, which is displayed in us. Christ's likeness in us. So you can summarize that the fruit for God that Paul's talking about here is anything that bears resemblance to the character and the conduct of Christ. What's the point then that Paul is trying to make here? That he's, he's rebutting re, re, the concept that grace produces in us liberty to sin. And he's saying, no, grace leads to faithfulness and produces fruit of righteousness. Now, in that TV show, Dead to Me, along with the slogan, that person is dead to me or you're dead to me, Paul here is trying to show us that the law, which once had authority over us, which once dominated us, is now dead to us because we have died in Christ. When Christ died, we died. When he was raised to life, we too were raised to life. Problem is, in the TV show, it's all fiction. It's all imagination. And here I've been telling you, you have died in Christ. And you're thinking, you know, that sounds like religious fiction. It sounds like a bit of hocus pocus, a fanciful imagination. I'm not dead. I'm still very much alive. It's not mere fiction. It's not wishful thinking. This is a declaration that God himself has made. And as I've told you over and over again, what is faith except to believe that what God has said is true, whether you understand it, believe it, or like it? The law that once claimed authority over me, that once condemned me, that even incited me to sin and failure, since I have died in Christ, the law is dead to me. Let's pray. My prayer, God, is that we would not just grow up to be more educated, more knowledgeable in your word, but more than that, that we are changed by our encounter with the word that your truth would penetrate us and make us different. And ultimately, our maturing view of who we are and our growing view of who you are changes the way we live our lives. To God be the glory. Father, cause us to ruminate on these things. And allow your word to have its effect in changing our lives. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.